Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to The Rest is Politics, leading with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And nothing less than a Rest is Politics leading Christmas Day special with... Tom Holland. And it's a special day, partly because we've all got our Christmas jumpers on. I noticed, Alistair, tell us a little bit about your Christmas jumper for people listening rather than watching. Uh, ABBA. It's an ABBA Christmas jumper. Worshipping false gods. And it's that, can I, I can't quite see off the frame. It's got a reindeer on it, has it, as well as lots of stars. It's got everything Christmassy. It's got oh, Santa's, lovely. It's got elves. That's tremendous. Yeah. Absolutely tremendous. And Tom is wearing a dinosaur Christmas jumper, which I think is very, very, very striking. Well, one and, of the uh, things I know about Tom Holland is that he's mildly obsessed with um, dinosaurs. Very good. Well, we're not here to talk about dinosaurs. We are here to talk about Christmas, um, which uh, we don't need to remind <laughs> listeners is, of course, the birth <laughs> Birth of Christ. Christ. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just about Abba, it's also about Jesus. And we're going to be talking about religion and politics. We're going to be talking about Tom Holland's astonishing and quite controversial idea that basically in the end, we are all almost Christians and the whole world is Christian without us really being aware of it. And Christmas Day seemed to be quite a good way of getting into that rather interesting, controversial idea. And of course, I'm sure many of our listeners will know that Tom Holland is the co-presenter of another podcast, which frankly gave birth to this one or helped to give birth to this one. That is The Rest is History. So without further ado, here, Christmas Day special with Tom Holland. I'm very grateful that you've invited me onto a podcast called Leading, because I have to be upfront. I have never led anything in my life. So I, I do feel a bit of a fraud in that sense. Except for cricket. I mean, you're a big leading cricketer, as we know from your Twitter. I, I suppose that's true. I suppose that's true. I have led a cricket team, but that's about it. It's not exactly Hillary Clinton, is it? I suppose she didn't She didn't lead in much either, so. Oh, harsh, harsh, harsh. But just on, just on lead, I, I'd, I'd argue that you've led in debate on some of the most important and interesting aspects of the history of civilization, which is quite a big thing. Well, that's very kind. <laughs> that's a nice Christmas present. Yeah, I wouldn't knock yourself too much. And, you know, you led in the most successful global, global podcast, not the most successful domestic podcast, which would be the one that Rory and I present. So, Tom, I want to start 
with so we met briefly the other night at do you want to tell our listeners where we accidentally bumped into each other well we met at lambeth palace where the archbishop of canterbury was hosting a small and intimate carol service and i walked in expecting not to know anyone and then i saw you there and i was very surprised because um famously you said that you don't do god so yeah but then there were quite a lot of people there i think who don't do god which is kind of interesting i think there were i think justin welby who's a very very fine man and obviously until i got friendly with rory by a mile my favorite old Etonian. but i think he sees himself as a bit of a, a missionary i think he's on the conversion all the time and he he, he sees us as, as a challenge but i want to ask you so you were there i was there as you say lots of people who believe and, and others who don't so just first of all with you do you believe and i can remember when i I interviewed Justin Welby for a magazine once. He said that the thing about belief is that you have to believe the basic story. Jesus was born to a virgin mother. He is the son of God. The tenets in the Bible, they are true about his life. So do you believe that story? You know, there's that thing where uh, you look at this shape and you either see a rabbit or you see a duck. And it's very hard to keep them both in your in your head at the same time. And that's how I feel. There are times where I can believe it. So Christmas, I guess, would definitely be one. Easter would be another. And there are other times where I look at the stories and I think this is absolutely ridiculous. How could it possibly be true? I think of the infinitude of space. I think of the vastness of geological time. And I think it's absolutely, absolutely nonsense. So I kind of veer between the two. I guess I would like to believe but there are most of the time I don't. But having said that, I have come to recognize myself as being profoundly Christian in my assumptions and everything that I take for granted. And I don't think that I'm alone in that. I think pretty much everybody who is brought up in the West, the same could be said of them. This is our obviously our Christmas Day podcast. And be lovely if you could just reflect a little bit on what the significance of Christmas Day is or the significance of of Jesus's birth is for the world and for our listeners? Well, I think, I mean, in the broadest historical terms, and why I say that I think that everybody in the West pretty much is steeped in Christian assumptions, perhaps one of the profoundest uh, illustrations of that is embodied by the Christmas story. Because in the Christian tradition, Christ is God. He is the king of the universe. He is eternal. And he comes to earth, and he comes not as a conqueror, not as a Caesar, not as a ru earthly ruler, but as someone who is born in a stable. And that sense of the utter reversal of expectations that Jesus himself will go on to say the last will be first, the first will be last, that sense that power is to be found in powerlessness, that the true manifestation of God is displayed in humility is a radically, radically transformative notion. It's something that would have made no sense to the Romans at all. I mean, it made no sense to the, the Judeans, the Christ's own people. And yet that idea that, that, that it is better in a way that there is a greater moral value, say, in being powerless than in being powerful, is transformative. And that idea is obviously still completely with us now. It explains so much in our politics. It explains so much in our geopolitics. It explains the assumptions that govern the behavior of people in 2023 and who may not even realize where they're getting those assumptions from. So you're a historian, though. And so we were there. There's the archbishop who I know really, really believes this story. And I was with my sister 
who also really, really believes this story. And she, I know, feels that somebody like me, who doesn't believe, that I am kind of going to be condemned at the end of my life. Now, you must be in that same category because you don't believe in the same way. You have these doubts. But I think you do believe, Alistair. Oh. Well, I, I, I think, for instance, that the political traditions of socialism would be unimaginable without this Christian heritage. You know, it's famously said that the Labour Party owes more to, to Methodism than to Marx, but Marx also would be unthinkable without this tradition. The idea that the rich and the wealthy and the powerful owe things to the poor. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly powerful idea. And because we take it so for granted, we may be tempted to assume that this has always been universal, but it hasn't. And I would say, looking at the context of the world into which Christianity is born, that it, the fact that we have come to take these ideas for granted is due to the inheritance of Christianity. So if you were taking that for granted, then you know you were believing it. These are contingent beliefs. There mm. are lots of people who wouldn't necessarily believe them. We had a chat at the at the event at Lambeth Palace, and I said, you know, give me some stuff to read before we do this chat. And you said, well, have you read Dominion, your book? And, and oh, I had honestly, <laughs> no Christian humility there. <laughs> yeah, but it's not a bad starting point. And so I've only had a day or two, so I, I have kind of skim read it. But I, I feel this tension within it between you as a historian. So there's one point at which I can't remember the detail, but you say that there's only one actual fact related to Jesus' life and death that we know is true. Well, but is, how can you say that? And, and, and how can we then make such assumptions about all the other parts of his life that we are told are real? What I actually said was that there's one fact about Jesus's life that pretty much every historian, no matter how skeptical, would accept, which is that he was crucified by the Romans. I think pretty much everyone would accept that. There are plenty of historians who think that we can know more than that. But the truth is that it doesn't matter whether, even whether Jesus existed or not. What matters from my point of view when I say that we are all Christian is that billions of people have thought that this is true. And that the consequence of that has been to radically reconfigure global history and continue to influence the way that people in the West think and take things for granted, even if they're not believing Christians, even if they've never read the Bible, even if they know literally nothing about Christianity, they're still influenced by it. And Tom, one of the things that's difficult to get our heads around is that our image, for example, of the Middle Ages, which is a very Christian age, is a feudalism of kings, of enormous inequality, of incredible sort of wealth and power and warfare. So it's tempting to imagine it as a very hypocritical age that pretends to be Christian, but isn't behaving in a very Christian way. But you seem to argue in the book something a bit different, that somehow despite all of that, they were profoundly Christian. Oh, I, I, I mean, absolutely. And I think that actually what we, we think of as medieval civilization, and perhaps we might be tempted because of the influence of the way that the Enlightenment has shaped most people's thinking, we're tempted to think of the Middle Ages as very hidebound, as very reactionary, as kind of unchanging. It's the opposite. And I would argue that medieval, high medieval society is Europe's first great revolutionary society. And there is in the 11th century, which is the age that, that sees the launching of the First Crusade and in due course, the emergence of kind of radical new ideas about how society should be organized, that this is Europe's first revolution. And pretty much everything that has followed 
the Reformation, the Enlightenment, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution is simply a replaying of the convulsions that happened in that century. But what, what evidence is there that people really cared about the poor, about putting the last first in an age of kings with astonishing wealth and peasants suffering in misery? Well, so one thing, for instance, that that emerges from this convulsive age is, I would argue, what today we would call the notion of the secular. And this is a concept that derives from the very beginnings of Christianity. It's kind of implicit in the Gospels. It's there in the teachings of the church fathers. And it's this idea that all of humanity, whether you are a king or whether you are a slave, is bound upon what the Romans called the cyclum, which is the flow of time that we are born, we live, we die. And the only thing that can save all of humanity from that is the religio, the bond that joins earth to the unchanging order of heaven. And in the 11th century, this inspires what you can only call a revolutionary movement that is led by the Bishop of Rome, but comes to lay claim to the entire expanse of Christendom. And it says that the church should be completely sovereign, that no earthly king or emperor should have the right to pour the radiant robes of the church with his grubby fingers. And the reason that the church wants to institute this is to offer a sovereign sense of justice to every Christian so that no matter how poor you are, no matter how humble you are, you have a right of appeal that transcends earthly power. And the implications of this over the course of the Middle Ages into the modern period is utterly profound because essentially it's dividing the world into two spheres, that of the seculum and that of religio. And it's by, say, the 18th century, this has become what we would call the secular and religious. And it's bred entirely of theology and a kind of desire to give all Christians a sense of, of appeal that transcends earthly power. But presumably, Tom, if you were a Muslim, you would point to the fact that that justice and rights are very fundamental to the notion of Islam. And there's very much a sense of an ummah. I don't think rights are, though, uh, because there are no human rights. Everything that comes in Islam comes directly from God. So in Islam, there is a great body of law that has come directly from God. God is, is a legislator. That is not the case in Christianity. In Christianity, the law that God gives is written on the heart. And so Christians have to look into the heart, which is why we in the West take for granted the fact that law can have human origin because it's coming from the sense of conscience that is in our hearts. But in the 12th century, in the wake of this kind of great transformation that sees the church try to split itself off from what will come to be defined as, as secular society. There is a need for the church to be able to have a sense of, of what laws should govern, how things are done. And so in the 12th century, people look to the Gospels to get some sense of what laws should govern the way that the Christian people live. And they read in the Gospels that the rich should give to the poor, that they should feed them if they're hungry, that they should give them water if they're thirsty, they should give them clothes if they have no clothing. And from that, they deduce the fact that therefore the poor have rights to certain things, that they have rights to food, they have rights to drink, they have right to clothing, they have rights to shelter. And this is an idea that, of course, has fed through into an age that is not consciously Christian. But the idea that we have rights is absolutely bred of the, the labours of those monks in the 12th century. And that, I think, is what's so extraordinary about Christian history, is that again and again, it's kind of like depth charges are being laid under the fabric of Western civilization that continue to reverberate 
through the centuries right the way into the present, even for people who may not be aware where those depth charges were originally laid. I'm, I'm looking at the cover of Dominion now, the paperback, and there are some figures of history on there. Martin Luther King, Hitler, the suffragettes, the Beatles. And, and actually, one of the chapters I, I most enjoyed was the chapter where essentially you were saying that the Beatles, and in particular some of the specific songs, John Lennon, Imagine, All You Need Is Love, that these were from an, a group of young men, atheists. I think Paul McCartney used to talk about religion as that goody-goody stuff. That actually you were saying they were all somehow connected to this basic story that may or may not be true. And just to develop on the point that Rory made, and yet this is an argument I have with my sister a lot, is that if I were a believing Christian, I believe that story so powerfully, so passionately, so fundamentally. And part of that is that I don't want to disrespect others. And yet a Muslim, a, a devout Muslim, believes their story just as devoutly, just as fundamentally, just as clearly, and that that is what has shaped the world that we live in. Absolutely. So I think that that one of the temptations in our secular society is to imagine that the secular is neutral and that Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Sikhs and whoever can be bundled into the, the big tent and it's it will operate in a completely neutral way. But that's that seems to me a complete fallacy. I think that the ideas of the secular society in their fundamentals are Christian. And so therefore there is inherently a strain on Jews, on Muslims, if they live in a Western secular state to adapt themselves to the assumptions that derive ultimately from this deep Christian history. So I think that that is a tension that is often not recognized by people in power who assume that as representatives of the secular state, they've somehow transcended the specificities of Western culture. They absolutely haven't. So, of course, Islam is a great global civilization and Christendom that emerges to become the secular West, likewise. And I, I repeat, these are very culturally contingent. Whether you believe it, whether you believe in Islam, whether you believe in Christianity, whether you believe in the values of a secular liberal state, these are not absolute, I think, from the kind of a, the historical point of view, they're contingent. They are bred of specific civilizational circumstances. Let's just focus then on today. So we're recording this just before Christmas. I think we can be fairly uh, sure that the catastrophe in Israel-Gaza is going to be continuing come Christmas Day. Tell me what I, were I a devout Christian or were I a devout Muslim, how I should be feeling looking at this happening while we're all sort of sitting around Christmas trees telling each other how marvellous the world is and giving each other love and presents. I mean, I don't think it's for me to tell anyone how they should feel. But what, what I would say is that in our beliefs, in the things that we, we may feel very passionately, we are often influenced by deep trends within history that we may barely even be aware of. So I would say, I mean, that the... The concern with Israel and Palestine and the suffering of people there is deeply reflective of the role that what Christians have always called the Holy Land continues to play. You don't have to be Christian to feel that that particular spot of land has a significance and a resonance that transcends that of other places. You know, there are terrible things happening elsewhere 
in the world. But are both sides currently engaging in unchristian conduct? Well, Christians have inflicted terrible violence and bloodshed over the course of their history, and they've done it specifically in the Holy Land. So one of the expressions of this great revolutionary period in Christian history in the 11th century, as we said, I mean, it culminates in the First Crusade, where crusaders wade through blood in the streets of Jerusalem. And there's no question that I think that both for Jews and for Muslims, likewise, the fact that this small plot of land has an outsized influence, both for Jews and for Muslims as well, means that attitudes towards the conflict there has a peculiar kind of heightened quality. And the fact that Jews, Christians, Muslims all feel that, but in different ways, I think only makes opportunities for resolving the war there even more complex. Tom, stepping aside from Christianity to you as a historian, what, as a historian, do you notice about the conflict that perhaps people who spend less time thinking and reading history might not immediately notice about what's happening in Israel-Gaza? Are there things from, I don't know, the Roman period or the early 20th century which help you to understand dimensions of the conflict that maybe you think people haven't been emphasizing enough in the last couple of months? Well, I'll be honest, I'm nervous to in any way pontificate on that conflict because I think it is so complex. And I think that the the political and emotional complications of it are so profound that only those who, who are really very intimate with it and who are outside the conflict, I think, should to talk about it. I claim no special insights. But what what I would say is that I think that the way that it is playing out in Western capitals does reflect a kind of distinctively Christian sensibility, which if we're thinking about today is Christmas Day, the birth of Jesus in a, a stable in Bethlehem, uh, which is you know now part of Palestine, that that explains the way in which both the Israelis and the Palestinians, when they are framing their appeals to Western support, are emphasizing the degree to which they are the oppressed. That if you like, they are David with the slingshot rather than Goliath in his armor. And neither of them are emphasizing their power. What matters is to claim the status, if you like, of of victim. Because there is a kind of power in the West in claiming that status. You know, we've seen that over recent years, that if you can claim that status as a victim, then you claim a kind of moral status as well. And I think that both the Israelis and the Palestinians, when they're making their appeals to Western opinion, are completely aware of that. So if we go back to John Lennon, imagine, and he's he's an atheist, and you're saying, but he's nonetheless influenced by Christianity. What do you say to to the argument that that this current conflict is actually a direct product of faith, of religion, of us wanting to believe stories that we don't in our deep down, as historians, we don't actually know whether they're true. I think that's entirely plausible. I mean, it seems indisputable that I, I remember sitting on the Mount of Olives and um, and looking down at uh, the Temple Mount where the Jewish temple stood, the temple that had been built by Solomon and then by Herod and was destroyed by the Romans. And when Christianity then, when when the Roman Empire then became Christian, Jews were banned from going up to the Temple Mount. And then in due course, the Muslims arrived and they built the Dome of the Rock, supposedly on the site of, of, of where the Holy of Holies had stood in the Jewish temple. And thinking this is, you know, this is 
one of the great trigger points of the world. There is so much emotional investment in this tiny plot of rock. And it's an absolute kind, you know, you can imagine all kinds of terrible things happening here. And I, I was making a documentary and we spoke to an Israeli who was very keen to demolish the Dome of the Rock and rebuild the temple. And I was kind of thinking, wow, if that happens, I mean, who knows what, what could kick off? There's no objective reason why that plot of land should have any more significance than, I don't know, a building site in Watford. But of course but it, it does. does. It does. Yeah. And there's no question that what people believe about the dimensions of the supernatural has an absolutely visceral impact on the dimensions of the natural. Tom, I'm very keen, again, to get you thinking about 20th century history and contemporary politics, and in particular, maybe in relation to Israel-Palestine. How does understanding of colonialism or understanding of the Cold War or understanding of populism, if we take kind of three trends the 20th, 21st century, help inform the way in which this thing is playing out at the moment. Do you see empire, Cold War, populism in this conflict? I think that that how you interpret what's going on in, in Israel and Palestine will very much be determined by the kind of story that you have in your head. So if you feel that the great story of the past 200 years, say, has been European imperialism, then you will see Israel as an expression of that. If you see the great curse of the modern world as being American hyperpower, then again, you will interpret Israel in that sense. If your narrative is that Western civilization is under attack, that it's being subverted both from without and from within, then again, you will bring that perspective to the conflict. And so I think that that in a sense is why I, I wouldn't presume to comment on it with any great kind of sense, because I feel that it's like a kind of Rorschach test for people in the West. You can tell exactly what they, th you know, if you know what they think about Israel or Palestine, then you will know probably what they think about a whole host of other issues as well, their perspectives on the world. And I, I suspect that if you are, you know, you are in Gaza or you are a mother mourning the death of her child in Israel, you will feel that none of these stories are really adequate to explaining the depth of your grief and your horror at what is going on. I think you have to be in the eye of the storm, actually, at the moment while it's raging, properly to have a sense of what it means. Mm. Okay, Tom, Rory, let's just take a quick break. Back in a minute. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi. 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Tom, one of the um, the phrases that I probably get reminded of virtually every day, not least from theology students who are doing theses upon it, is when I said, we don't do God. And what I meant by that was that I don't think the British people want their politicians to be wearing their faith on their sleeves. I could be right or wrong about that, but that's kind of what I've always thought, even though I knew that Tony Blair was a you know, somebody of very, very deep religious faith, as have other prime ministers been in the past. What does it say about us that that is, I think, our basic approach to religion and politics? Whereas in America, you kind of have to go to church and you have to carry the Bible and you have to say, God bless America. And I feel that what we see in American politics at the moment, particularly with the kind I cannot for the life of me understand why evangelical Christians sort of are so powerfully for Trump who seems to me deeply irreligious, deeply unchristian, and a very, very, very bad human being doing very bad things to the world. So first of all, I guess, what does it say about UK and America and our attitudes to religion and to politics? But also, what does it say about the power of religion that the Americans feel they have to co-opt it in that way? I think that since the 60s, we've been going through a process of convulsion that is comparable to the Reformation in the 16th century. And I think that it is affecting different countries in different ways. Because Christianity has been so saturating in British history, you know, people have been imbibing this stuff for a thousand years and more. It affects us in Britain in in a distinctive way. Equally in the United States, it's a country that was founded by Puritans, by Quakers, by uh, evangelicals. That history also has shaped the way that politics is experienced in the US. And this great convulsion that happens in the 60s 
where lessons and impulses and instincts that derive from Christianity have been kind of profoundly transfigured. You know, I quote the Beatles right at the head of the book and I, I write about them. They seem to me expressive of a trend that what happens in the 60s is that Christian teaching, theology, scripture is transmuted into a kind of vibe. All you need is love. That's all you need. You don't need to get it from the from churches or from reading the Bible or whatever. It's just part of your heart. It's in your soul. You know where it's taking you. But of course it doesn't because everybody feels things differently. And so therefore, the kind of climate of opinion that has been generated by these centuries and centuries of Christian opinion in the United States and in Britain express themselves in kind of quite different ways. So my sister always says, well, you, you may think you don't do God, but God does you. Is that what you're saying? I'm not saying anything about whether God exists or not, but what I would say is that I think you do do God because I think that your beliefs and your values and your assumptions derive from the Christian understanding of God. I mean, whether God exists or not, I mean, that's irrelevant from the point of view of understanding why you think what you do. I think you are very, very profoundly shaped by that legacy. What about my old boss? Because Tony Blair is not a kind of, he, he sort of, he doesn't project himself as a, a godly person. And yet I know from having worked alongside him very, very closely, the fact that we always used to have to, if we were abroad, we had to find a church. The fact that he travels with the Bible, that he reads it. What's your sense in British politics and in American politics of, of presidents and prime ministers where you think actually their faith has been fundamental to their politics? I think considering how far Christianity, uh, uh, you know, institutional Christianity, the habit of going to the church and, and having a familiarity with the Bible has retreated since the 60s. I think it is amazing, actually, how many prime ministers have been profoundly influenced by a kind of Christian heritage. So Mrs. Thatcher, obviously, James Callaghan was before her. Theresa May. Gordon Brown, um, son of the manse. I mean, I, the degree to which he, he, he believes that I'm never entirely certain, but clearly, I mean, he's absolutely the child of his father. And Theresa May, likewise, kind of very, very strongly influenced. I think that um, <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> I know that uh, the whole point coming on the rest is politics is to give Boris Johnson a kicking. But that's the point of it. I think he is not the at most, all. I think he is the most profoundly unchristian prime minister we've had because I think he is a properly a kind of neo-pagan figure. I think that the influence of the classical world on him is much profounder than that of a kind of Christian teaching. Um, and I think that that does a lot to explain what, to a, from a Christian perspective, may seem his kind of distinctive amorality. I mean, obviously, Tom, nothing I want to do more than a return to the fight on Boris Johnson, who I, I think is would be someone even the Romans would be profoundly ashamed of. But I, I'm not going to get dragged too deeply into that. I'm going to go to another shameful figure of the modern age, which is Donald Trump, who, again, I doesn't seem to me to be an, a figure awfully kind of imbued with Christian morality and values. Um, can you give us a sense of this weird paradox that here is this kind of amazing, swinging, crass, misbehaving, lying, ludicrous orange figure who suddenly gets embraced by the evangelical movement in the United States. So I think that the culture wars in the United States, which have been raging since the 60s, are in a sense a Christian civil war. It's bred of the civil rights movement, which indisputably drew from Christian wellsprings. The leaders of the civil rights movement appealed to white Christians in overtly Christian terms. And by and large, white Christians accepted the justice of what they were saying. But the arguments of the civil rights movement then got picked up by people for whom 
traditional conservative Christians found it harder to accept, so gay rights, feminism, whatever, and that these then kind of meant that impulses and campaigns that derived from Christian impulses were seen by lots of Christians as being deeply unchristian. And feminists and gay rights campaigners likewise felt that Christianity was the enemy. But in fact, these arguments, which have split America in two, are drawing from the same wellspring. So I would say that there is no aspect of the culture wars that isn't in some way a Christian civil war. So to give the, um, you know, the classic one is, I guess, trans rights at the moment. This is the kind of the big, big issue. So there's no question that it's fundamental to Christian teaching that man and woman are separate. God creates man and woman distinctively in Genesis. And so you might think, well, how could trans rights possibly have anything to do with Christianity? But again, it's couched in this sense that trans people have been left behind by the campaign for gay rights, that they are the most persecuted people, they're the most persecuted minority, and that that persecution, that status of being the ultimate victims in society is what gives them their dignity. And that, again, I think is unthinkable without deeply held Christian assumptions. So that's what I meant by saying that I think that what we're going through in the West at the moment is comparable to the Reformation, because these are arguments ultimately about doctrines that derive from Christianity. And we know that the fact that these are passionately held is precisely what makes the arguments about them so vituperative. And that, I think, is why evangelicals turn to someone like Trump, who is a completely unchristian figure, a kind of a braggart, a bully, um, a kind of monstrous, grotesque. And yet, you know, he's their grotesque. They can feel that he's batting on their side. And he's been compared by supporters of Trump to King Cyrus, the Persian king, who allowed the people from Jerusalem to go back and rebuild the temple. Cyrus wasn't a Jew, but he, you know, he played the role of the patron of the Jews. And I think that evangelicals feel that the challenge they face from progressives is so profound that they need help wherever they can get it and that Trump offers that help. Yeah, and, and, and they talk about him sometimes as the second coming. I mean, they talk about him in almost sometimes in kind of a, they feed his sort of Messiah complex. It's interesting in Dominion, which you wrote some years ago now, but you, you have a chapter about woke. And I'm fascinated by this as well because I, I didn't realize, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it sort of springs directly from awakening and, and that has a sense of a religious element and a revelatory element to that as well. So what's happened within the debate about politics and, and religion that woke has become this kind of catch-all term of abuse for anybody who's sort of vaguely wants to make poor people better off and help the oppressed and help the weak. What has happened? I think it's a convenient shorthand for something that is quite new, which is, I think, it's a kind of post-Christian or in cases anti-Christian progressivism that draws on palpably Christian assumptions. And to repeat, it's this fundamental idea that the last shall be first, the first shall be last. It upends the traditional hierarchies. You know, as we said at the beginning, this is the essence of the Christian story, that the king of the world is born not on the Palatine Hill in the imperial capital of Rome, but in a stable. So that's a deeply unconservative view of the world. It is. And I think that, to be honest, to build a civilization that is founded on the tenets of Christianity is akin to building San Francisco on the San Andreas Fault, every so often you're going to get a great convulsion because people are going to say, well, what about <laughs> the fact that the first should be last? Uh, and this explains, I think, the repeated kind of seismic 
convulsions that have shaped and shaken European and then Western civilization over the course of the past thousand years. That first great revolution in the 11th century, the Reformation, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, whatever it is that we're living through at the moment. And I think woke is a convenient shorthand for it. But, you know, it took 150 years for people to realize that they'd lived through something called the Reformation. And maybe it'll take us you know, you know, we don't know what we're living through at the moment, but it's something weird. Tom, I wonder whether secularism isn't more of a shift than you want to acknowledge, because obviously in, in your account, we end up in a sort of absurd world where every single thing that you can think of is Christian. It's very difficult to think of anything in the modern world that you don't say is somehow Christian. Somebody could be an oh, atheist. No, there's lots. They could be. Okay. No, no, there's lots. So I would say Darwinism, for instance, is very subversive of Christian claims that there is an inherent dignity in being weak or disadvantaged relative to the strong. I mean, Darwinism really doesn't, or at least, you know, as it's been mediated through Western history in the 20th century, absolutely doesn't suggest that. And I would say that in the modern world, transhumanism, the idea that, you know, which is very popular in, um, particularly in Silicon Valley, the idea that technology offers humans a chance to transcend the limitations of Homo sapiens is also very subversive of Christianity. Because at the heart of Christianity is the idea that every human being is created in the image of God and that thereby has an inherent dignity. But if people can transcend that human status, then where does that leave that idea? Tom, I, th I suppose I was sort of pushing on to something else, which is that the drop in faith, the drop in attendance in churches has big social impacts. I mean, one of the ones that I'm most conscious of is what's happened, for example, in the global campaign against extreme poverty. A, a lot of the drive in the 80s and 90s to make poverty history, the Live Aid conference, all this stuff, came out of the World Council of Churches, as well as the trade union movement. And one of the most striking things now is in the absence of strong trade unions with their Christian roots and in the absence of a real sense of international Christian solidarity, it's very much more difficult to mobilize people to think about extreme poverty in Africa. In fact, there's a sense of increasing isolation and very difficult to raise. I mean, international development funding's going down around the world. People are giving less and less to charity. And it's just much less interesting to people that there are people suffering extreme poverty in Africa. And that seems to me to be directly related to the fact that people may be, in your sense, proto-Christian, but the mere fact that they're no longer attending these institutions of churches and that there's no longer that sense of solidarity is having a big impact financially on the extreme poor in Africa. I mean, I think that this is the big question that I don't really try to answer in Dominion because I'm writing it as a historian, not as a futurist, is, is what happens? To what extent are we as a society continuing to live off the kind of, you know, the, the accumulated interest of Christianity? And when we burn through that, what will happen? So if the roots are withering, then will the flower continue to bloom? And I guess I would see three possibilities lying ahead. And the first is that the claims of humanists and kind of devout secularists, if I can put it like that, are true, that we don't need Christianity to provide rocket fuel for these, the kind, for instance, the idea that the wealthy have a duty to care for those who are, are poorer than them. That we we just accept this as being a kind of almost a scientific objective truth, and that therefore we don't need the mumbo jumbo of Christian teaching to sustain it. Another darker possibility is that people will kind of increasingly adopt a pre-Christian perspective 
which is to celebrate wealth and power and glory and to think, well, why should we bother with the weak? Why should we bother with the poor? And, you know, we've, we've had some experience of what that means. I think one of the reasons actually why institutional Christianity has faded so profoundly since the war is that in a sense, the Nazis and Hitler, people who absolutely celebrated the power of the strong and the mighty, have replaced the old Christian mythology with a new demonology. So we don't need the devil anymore. We have Hitler. And whereas before the Nazi period, people would say, what would Jesus do and try and do it? Now people are much likely to say, what would Hitler do and try and do the opposite? But if that fades, then maybe a celebration of strength for its own sake will come in and people will say, well, why should we bother with the poor in Africa, for instance? Um, and another possibility is that people will think, well, actually, maybe we need Christian teaching to sustain this. And maybe there will be a kind of recrudescence of that. I, but I don't know what, what, which of those options, maybe a mix of all three. But Tom, just flowing from that. So I, call me sad, but I, I watched a lot of the Rwanda debate in parliament recently. And there was one contribution that really, really hit me quite hard. It was an MP from Don Valley. I think his name's Fletcher. And he was essentially totally in favor of, you know, stick him on a plane, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And said so this utter nonsense about how if you go into an A&E in Doncaster, nobody speaks English. I mean, I know that hospital very, very well because my before my brother died, he was in there for many, many weeks and the guy's talking absolute nonsense and I know that to be the case. They've got 4% non-white in the area. Um, anyway, so that was annoying enough. But then when it came to the immigration minister winding up the debate, he singled out this MP for saying, I know he comes under a lot of attack because he's so open about his religious faith. And I thought, my God, so this guy isn't just spouting nonsense, being vile about the poor and the oppressed, coming up with simple populist solutions and lies about the state of the world. He parades, I presume he will be spending Christmas Day with his maker, with his faith. And I just think, I don't know what I thought at the end of it, but I felt revolted by it. Well, there are many ways to be Christian. And there are many opportunities for hypocrisy <laughs> in Christianity. Um, I mean, hypocrisy has been the, the, the shadow of Christian charity right the way from the beginning. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, there's one way to be Christian. And on the issue of, say, of refugees uh, in, in Dominion, I write about two very different responses to the great migration crisis of 2016. There was Angela Merkel's She's the daughter of a, you know, a, a, a minister raised with the sense of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I would say that in the assumption of progressives and liberals that refugees should be welcomed, that would be unthinkable, I think, without the residual cultural impact of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But equally, there is Viktor Orban in Hungary and the Hungarians experience conquest and occupation by the Muslim Ottomans, who of course feel that Christianity needs to be defended. And so he put up the fences. And those are both Christian responses that you can trace back through centuries and centuries. And they're both equally Christian. Tom, you and I have just done a BBC thing on Caesar. And I was very interested, I just take you back for a second before the birth of Christ to reflect on political leadership. I, I was fascinated by it because it seemed to me at times that you were really enjoying the figure of Caesar, enjoying his glory, enjoying his success, enjoying his triumph. Whereas Rory saw him as a Poundland Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> and I know who, who Rory saw himself as. <laughs> exactly. I was deeply, deeply troubled. Um, I wonder whether you 
could reflect a little bit on the role of character or what, you know, maybe people following Aristotle would have called virtue in politics and whether you believe in that at all or whether as a historian you've become so cynical and structural in your views that you no longer do feel that that's something that's relevant in political life. Well, I think that different societies and different cultures and different periods have have valued different things in, in political leaders. So I would say that Julius Caesar, for instance, he is the embodiment of greatness. And there is something about greatness that thrills and inspires people. It still does. Even in our contemporary world, Caesar is a figure of immense charisma. And one of the things that set me on the road to writing Dominion and to realizing how Christian in my assumptions I was, was thinking about how people in Rome responded to Caesar's commentaries on his conquests of Gaul, in which it was said that he slaughtered a million Gauls and he took another million as slaves. And there is nothing apologetic about Caesar's presentation of his conquest of Gaul. It's all about the glory. And people in Rome loved it. They adored it. That is something that obviously is expressive of a very profound difference between us and them. I was writing, I, re- I was writing about Julius Caesar in uh, Rubicon, my first work of history, as the Iraq war was going on. And in that, American generals were coming on the TV every evening to boast about how few people they'd killed. Whereas in Rome, people would carry placards boasting about how many people they'd killed. That's quite a profound difference. And your sense of who is a good leader when you have you know, such different societies is obviously going to be very different. Tom, th- maybe this relates to the point you made right at the top that you couldn't understand why we'd asked you to come on, on leading. But the one thing that Rory and I always do with our interviewees on leading is to go right back to their beginning. So what is it in your life and childhood that made you a historian? What is it it in your life and childhood that developed the relationship that you have with Christianity? I I, I was one of those boys who was obsessed by dinosaurs. Uh, In fact, I am sat here wearing a um, merry... Mary Rexmus. I've got a picture of Tyrannosaur with a, a, a Santa hat on. <laughs> to I've go got, with your I've ABBA. Got, I've got your, ABBA. Your, appalling, your, your monstrous ABBA t-shirt. Um, <laughs> and I, to be honest, it was the kind of the, the fact that they were big and fierce and glamorous and terrifying and safely extinct, I think, that, that made me fascinated by them. And I then moved seamlessly on to the Romans. So everything that I was saying about Julius Caesar, I found it very, very thrilling and exciting and glamorous. And it seemed to me that the past was in a way more exciting, more thrilling than uh, than um, than the present. And I remember being in a multi-story car park in Salisbury when my mother was out shopping and I was in the back seat and looking at the kind of the faded gray concrete and kind of wishing that I was in a, you know, in ancient Rome or something, it would have been so much more exciting. And it may be that because I grew up, I grew up in Wiltshire outside Salisbury. It's got, you know, you've got Stonehenge, you've got the cathedral, you've got castles all around. You've got the very famous spire that the FSB love. The spire. Maybe it just kind of subliminally gave me a sense that the past, in a way, was was more exciting. But also, you you were you were from a mixed marriage, weren't you? In, in that your dad was an atheist and your mum was a, a believer. Is that right? I, I'm never entirely sure what my father was really because he never talks about it. 
Um, <laughs> he's just not interested in it. Um, so maybe that's even more kind of anti-Christian than to be an atheist. I mean, I think atheism in a way, if you're a militant atheist, it's a kind of extreme form of Protestantism in this country. I mean, you believe it. Um, he doesn't really believe anything. For my mother, yeah, it's been very, very important. And she's always been a kind of great moral role model for me. And so I've never been kind of ideologically opposed to Christianity because I think of my mother and I think of my godmother who were both great influences on me and I admire them so much that I, I, I've always kind of admired Christians. Tom, as my final question, obviously for me, being a conservative is partly about a respect for what we've inherited from our predecessors, respect for tradition, for history, respect for the constitution we've inherited and defending those things. And, and obviously that's part of what we're playing out in this BBC documentary and my love of Cato and his attempt to defend the old Roman constitution and the old Roman Republic against Caesar. I'm, I'm interested in the way in which, oddly as a historian, you don't seem to feel a particular instinctive veneration for tradition and history politically in the way that I do. And I wonder whether as your last thought you'd reflect on why that might be the case. Oh, I say I, I have a very strong small c conservative. I don't like old things being broken, which is one of the reasons, for instance, why I've been so opposed to the government's plans to drive a, a road tunnel through the landscape that surrounds Stonehenge. I, I mean, it really offends me. But what I also think is that we live in a, a society where our traditions inherently breed upheaval. So the paradox, I think, of living in a Christian society is that our traditions inherently foster the desire to kind of recalibrate and in some cases eradicate those traditions. And that's the paradox that the French revolutionaries, you know, when they're trying to overthrow the monarchy and the church, are doing it for reasons that are deeply Christian, that are deeply rooted in the traditions of France. And I think you see that you know, in, in the United States at the moment, that's part of what's going on, that people who are opposed to the traditions of the United States are doing it for very, very American reasons, which is why I think that the relationship, say, in this country where, you know, it's such an old country, that the relationship between conservative instincts and radical instincts are more complex than they're often represented as being, because radicalism in Britain is itself quite a conservative tradition. Now, my very final question Tom, you know, I, I hate to lower the tone, but it's kind of my constitutional duty on this podcast. We're going into an election year, Labour v Tory, what would Jesus vote? Jesus, I think, probably would, because he is uh, obviously been dead for 2,000 years, would have no idea what was going on at all. The whole scenario would be so alien to him. What a cop-out. Uh, but what I would say is... Um, I, th I think that what is deeply subversive about Christian teaching and about the teaching of Jesus as he's portrayed in the Gospels is that he proclaims the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is set apart from earthly rule and earthly kingdoms. And when he's brought before, you know, when he's arrested before his crucifixion, he's brought before the Sanhedrin, the, uh, the Judean religious leaders, the people who administer the temple, and he rejects them because he sees them as interfusing what the, the dimension of the divine with the dimension of the earthly. And then he's brought before Pontius Pilate, the representative of Roman power. And likewise, the Romans also interfuse you know, the worship of the gods with a sense of, of Caesar's earthly power, and he rejects that as well. And that is what is unsettling about Christian teaching 
for people in in his lifetime is the idea that he says that there is a truth that transcends politics. So that is a kind of cop out, but it's a very Christian cop out. And I'm sure you would expect nothing less from me. Absolutely. <laughs> the producer has just put a message in. So does he vote Lib Dem? Then? Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's the answer. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're not giving Jesus the Lib Dems. Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm sure our listeners will thoroughly enjoy that as they get over their festive whatever. The only, only sad thing is that we haven't had a Christmas carol out of either you or Alistair. But I can play carols on the bagpipes. You don't think you could sing a little line of a carol for us just as the final end of our Christmas special? Go on, special. Tom, go on. I, do you go know, on. I'm not going to because as someone on a rival podcast, well, a, a sister podcast, I am singing there and people who want to hear me sing can look forward to the series that we're doing oh. on the Nazis in power where I sing oh. Edelweiss as the introduction to our episode on the Anschluss. Yeah, so, so it's not a hymn, but in a way it's a Christmas song, isn't it? happy to greet me. Exactly. Great so. song, great song. Yeah. So um, anyone who wants to hear me sing, do tune into the rest of history in the new year and you can hear me sing Edelweiss. And, and I, can, I can also, uh, to emphasise the point that Tom does a lot of his own research, uh, he was sitting at the Archbishop's carol service with one of the thickest books on the Third Reich I have ever <laughs> yes. seen. It was the most inappropriate book to have brought to Lambeth Palace. <laughs> it made Lawrence Reese's tomes look like sort of bookazines. It was huge. Oh, well, thank anyway. you guys. And, and thank you for your reflections. I think there's a lot of really important, interesting thoughts about Christianity there and a good, if somewhat serious way of marking Christmas Day. And maybe we can do the same on Islam. I'm interested in us maybe mm. doing a special episode around Eid this coming year. Thank you all very, very much indeed. All the best. Happy Christmas, everyone. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. So, Alistair, what, what did you think of Tom Holland? Well, I really enjoyed that. I once defined myself as a pro-faith atheist, although it's interesting that Tom clearly thinks that I'm not an atheist and that I'm a sort of deep, devout Christian. But I've always been very interested in faith. And what I, I ha, I'm ashamed to say I hadn't read Dominion until he advised the other night that I should. And so I've been skim reading, fast reading. I'm going to read it properly over. It's quite a big book. It's a very, very big book, but it's really, really interesting. This is the great thing about something like about Tom Holland. Because, I mean, to have all that stuff in his head, I know that when he does the rest of history, he and Dominic Sambrook, they have papers. I know that. But there's so much stuff in his head. And I think to have, when you read this book, I'm just in awe of the, the reading that he must have done, the original research he must have done. And he does say some very, very, very interesting things. I, I, I think that you know, there's a, the, the chapter that we talked about in relation to, to John Lennon. It really, really makes you think differently about the Beatles. So one of the things that I wish I'd been able to do more on with him is to discuss Islam. Because, you know, he, he grew up in a Christian context and I partly grew up in the Muslim world. You know, I mm. spent part of my childhood in Malaysia and I then obviously spent life living in Indonesia and Afghanistan, Pakistan, etc. And I find it difficult to say that everything that we think about, you know, human rights or dignity or compassion is purely Christian. I feel that Islam is so shot through profoundly with a sense of human dignity, a profound sense of equality, a profound sense of justice. Now, you know, we, we probably, if we'd had longer, he could get into trying to explain why that's different 
and that's not quite the same and why that doesn't quite add up to human rights. But certainly I feel that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights drew on a lot of different religious traditions. And I definitely often felt, you know, with Afghan friends that they had an incredibly strong sense of of justice. And that it, it so anyway, I, I, we didn't have time to get into that. But I'm a little bit worried, the idea that everything good, everything progressive mm. is Christian. I guess the point that he made when you put that to him was that God, Islam is, as it were, everything is God-made, whereas the rules and norms and conventions that he says are deeply Christian have been man-made, as it were, following the lesson and the teachings of, of Christ and Christianity. And of course, don't forget, we didn't have time to get into this, but one of the other things that Tom, he, he makes very interesting documentaries, and he made a documentary about Islam some years ago, which ended up in him receiving death threats galore, and it became incredibly controversial. I do think it's, I do think, I mean, it's one of the things that he does, which takes a lot of courage, and I think he, he deserves credit for, is speaking about a huge range of issues. But there is a problem with representation. I mean, I, I've spent a lot of, as I say, my life living in the Muslim world. I'd still be very, very cautious about speaking on behalf of Muslims or defining what Islam is. But I guess that's what he, he has to do. I mean, he's trying to explain complicated ideas from around the world. And I guess he'd say he doesn't need to be a Roman to talk about Julius Caesar and he doesn't need to be a Muslim to talk about Islam. But I do still feel that we sometimes, all of us, even Tom, may be blind to dimensions of other people's religions, partly because religion isn't just a, a set of things that you can read in a book. This was one of the ways that I slightly disagree with your former boss, Tony Blair, when he'd say, you know, Islam is this kind of religion and I've read the Quran three times. I thought, you can't really work out what Christianity is just by reading the Bible or Islam by reading the Quran, that it's also about history and society and community and how you grow up and the way that you instinctively treat each other. And that's, I think, we're often missing with Islam. I do think that in relation to the way that politics and religion and faith intersect is probably, well, I don't think there's any probably about it. It is very, very different in the Islamic world. Uh, if you look at some of the current leaders, leaders in, in the Islamic world, they couldn't possibly lead and be effective and popular unless they were absolutely committed to their faith. Erdogan in, in Turkey essentially has has built what some would argue is a sort of proto-dictatorship around it. Likewise, you look at, you know, Imran Khan. I mean, I don't know what Imran yep. Khan in his heart. I don't know. I don't see inside his heart. But I think he he would definitely be in that category because he's a kind of internationalist figure who knows the West very well. Yeah. I also think there's something we, you know, maybe need to explore more in the podcast, which is the point that you kept making about how often these politicians in a secular society present themselves as religious. Because the, the truth is that Britain has fewer and fewer people going to church. I mean, our churches are largely empty. And, you know, th there is few of changes. I mean, obviously, there'll be some clergymen listening to this who will say, oh, no, it's not quite true. You know, there's some bits of the evangelical movement that are growing. And But broadly yeah. speaking, we're becoming a more and more secular study. And actually, it's even true in the United States. I mean, many more people go to church in the US, but the trend is on its way down. And yet, the politicians are still very much presenting themselves. Um, often as Christians. Although actually, interestingly, I mean, I think Rishi Sunak doesn't claim to be a Christian. And I think one of the things that was interesting and potentially awkward about um, the coronation was that he as a Hindu was then reading, I guess, a lesson from the Bible in Westminster Abbey. I noticed when he gave evidence at the COVID inquiry, he swore to tell the truth, the whole truth, not the truth, but 
in relation to a different God. Right. And that's really interesting because I can remember when I was a journalist, one of the stories that we used to cover was when Chris Patton was being identified as a possible Conservative Party leader. It was just a given, well, this is going to be impossible because he's a Catholic. Right, this right, was, right. That was, and that was very that was recently. Back, that was sort of 1997. Yeah, yeah. And now Sunak comes along, he's the Prime Minister's Hindu, and nobody bats an eyelid. Yeah, that's an incredible change, incredible. isn't it? In, in sort of 25 years. Yeah, no, no, I, I yeah. think that's, that's amazing. Um, I wonder what it is. Is it that psychologically... The public, uh, the, the fact that so many people present themselves as religious, do, do the public sort of psychologically feel reassured if somebody talks about having a faith that they somehow think that that's going to result in better political leadership, even if they don't believe themselves? I mean, what's going on here? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, look, Tony Blair, as I said in the chat with Tom, was, you know, deep faith. I think if he'd had his own way, he probably would have converted to Catholicism before he did. But he, he knew that it would be such a big deal within the political construct of the United Kingdom with the, the church and state allied in the way that they are, that he, that he waited. But it is interesting, isn't it, that you've now got, so whether it's um, Sunak here, Humza Yusuf in first minister in Scotland, it's, <laughs> it's just not a deal anymore. No. It's very I, interesting. I, well, it's a, I think it's a very, very strong and very impressive development in Britain. Anyway, thank you very much for that. And really, really fun to engage on a tricky and interesting subject. Maybe we need to return yeah, to. And enjoy your Christmas break. Happy Christmas. See you soon. Mm-hmm.